Welcome to What's Next, Cornet Global's podcast that puts members on the mic for thought-provoking, profession-shaping conversations and commentary. In this first episode of a three-part series on solving for the future workplace, Sonali Tare, Director of Knowledge and Research at Cornet Global, interviews Damla Gerhardt, Senior Managing Director for CBRE's Workplace Practice, and Julie Whelan, Head of Occupier Research for the Americas at CBRE, about the rise of activity-based workplace and unassigned seating. In a three-part series, CBRE discusses some of the strategies America's-based corporate occupiers are implementing to solve for the future workplace, workforce, and CRE team. First up today for this podcast, Solving the Future Workplace, the Unassigned Activity-Based Workplace, we have Julie Whelan, America's Head of Occupier Research, and then we also have Damla Gerhardt, Senior Managing Director of Workplace, they will discuss the rise of activity-based workspaces and an assigned seating. Um, so thank you to both Julie and Damla for being here today. We're very excited to have this uh, podcast. Thanks for having us, Sonali. Thank you, Sonali. Glad to be here. So um, let's go ahead with the first question. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what activity-based working is and is it the same as unassigned or open seating? Sure. So activity-based working is essentially the concept of providing a variety of different workspaces and essentially giving employees the choice of determining which of those workspaces suits their particular work activity the best. And in most cases, companies who implement this concept actually choose to go with unassigned seating. However, you don't have to do it that way. So an organization could give everyone an assigned seat and also provide them with an activity-based work environment, um, give, essentially giving them a, a series of other types of workspaces to choose from. And it's just going to result in a larger footprint if you do it that way, which obviously requires some additional financial considerations. Um, but the two of those things don't have to be um, it's not a choice necessarily to do one or the other. Yeah, and this is Julie. So as Domla said, I think generally an activity-based workplace environment can be described as a variety of individual and collaborative workspaces that are designed to support various work needs. But I think it's really important to understand that there's no single definition of what makes a perfect activity-based work environment. And it really, as Damla said, needs to be designed with the work style in mind of those that actually have to be productive in it. Um, I'd say that the biggest fallacy in interchanging the term open workspace and activity-based workplace is when we think about private-focused environments. Um, so in open plan environments, employees typically need to find a conference room to gain any kind of privacy for conversations or for focused work. And a lot of times that leads to frustration and lack of productivity when a room can't easily be found, or even if one person is alone taking up like a 10-person conference room to have that private conversation. Um, but in an activity-based workplace environment, there are multiple places that people can find space for privacy and focused work, from private offices to phone booths to huddle rooms. And it's interesting because for the first time in our America's Occupier survey this year, we questioned our respondents about what type of workplace strategy they're implementing. 
and we gave them options of traditional environments versus open plan environments versus activity-based workplace environments. And the overwhelming majority of them are actually moving towards activity-based workplace environments in the next three years. But what's important to realize is that to what Domla mentioned before, they're not all unassigned. So um, it was about a third of them were moving into assigned environments while having activity-based workplace environments, which we don't think is the most efficient, but it's a step in the right direction, um, with about two-thirds of them moving into a space where they were sort of jumping into the unassigned uh, workplace along with the activity-based work environment, which was really interesting this year, and it's something that will continue to trend over the next few years as we do the survey. Thank you. Um, it sounds like there's been a lot of uh, shifting and movement on, you know, how how occupiers view their spaces and how, you know, changing needs and changing uh, expectations are sort of, uh, you know, evolving the workplace more and more. Um, I understand that CBRE has implemented um, activity-based workspaces in its own offices, and then of course you always also advise other companies on how to do this. What would you say are the biggest lessons that companies can learn from uh, activity-based workspaces? Yeah, so, so we implemented our own workplace strategy. We call it Workplace 360. And so far in the last six years, we've, we've been able to do this in about 60, in six to eight offices globally, which is about 25% of our entire portfolio. So we obviously still have some ways to go. Um, but one of the goals, as we go through this is actually to create more transparency by making the office more open. But we firmly believe that 100% open office is not the answer. And so not only, it's not only the answer for ourselves, but so far for any of the clients that I've worked with in the last decade, it's, it's not been the right answer for them either. And essentially activity-based work environments are most effective when there's when they're somewhere in the range of 30 to 50% enclosed workspaces. And so I think a big lesson learned is that the word open is so subjective and it tends to scare people. Um, we know there's a real need for privacy and a balance of different space types that have to be part of the solution. And so I think it's really important for not only us as an organization when we're doing this in our own offices, but obviously when we're working with our clients to help them implement their own solutions, that we communicate to the employees, the population that's going to be the end users of this space, that we know this to be true, that we we have done, you know, this research, that we've read all the articles that they will inevitably be sending us about 100% open offices being unproductive places to work, and that that is not the end game or the solution that we are going to be driving to. So in a way, it sort of substantiates our existence as workplace strategists, um, but also tells employees in the organization that we're going to go through a process to understand how they work and what they do in order to come up with the solution that meets their needs. Yeah, and uh, so Jamla obviously has the experience of implementing these, which is wonderful. Um, and the experience that I have is coming more from the surveys that we do. And what I'm seeing is that a successful activity-based workplace environment is about much more than just the physical design or the aesthetic to it. 
So I think technology and change management are two extremely important elements of the strategy that frankly can make or break adoption in some cases. Um, much of the reason that activity-based workplaces are even a discussion today and can th thrive today is because technology allows us freedom. It allows us freedom to move around as we work because of laptops and mobile devices and cloud storage and Wi-Fi. And at the same time, there's technology available that connects all of us through video conferencing, the file sharing programs that we use, the messaging tools and wayfinding apps. And arming our employees with all of these things in an activity-based workplace environment is really critical to success. Um, and furthermore, engaging them in the process and training them to use the new tools and environment are keys to promote a culture that really is going to embrace the new work style. Um, what's encouraging about technology is, is that typically in the past, it hasn't really been an element of focus. It was always a line item and we brought technology in to, you know, put screens up in, in conference rooms and to um, connect computers. And what we're seeing now is that real estate is taking much more of a proactive role in terms of the way that technology is interacting with the experience of the end users in their environment. And our survey results are showing us that they're putting more money towards this, they're putting more resources towards this, um, and then in general, they're putting more energy towards this. And I think the two together, activity-based work environments that are physically designed appropriately and that have the technology in them that allows employees to be productive and efficient, they become environments that are then integral to an employee's success and that draw the employee into the office um, to get work done that they simply can't do better anywhere else, which is the golden ticket of where we're all trying to get to um, with this strategy. Thank you, Damla and uh, Julie. Are there any instances where unassigned seating or activity-based workspaces would not be uh, a good idea and just wouldn't apply? I'm going to go ahead and say this is kind of a bit of a trick question, but yes, <laughs> there, there are always going to be in every organization instances where employees need to utilize a really specific set of equipment or technology in order to get their work done. So it's just unrealistic to think that they can, you know, work in such a way where they're working off of a laptop and, and really utilizing all the various space types to get their job done. Um, but in my experience, that's, that's a really small population of people. And so it, it shouldn't be a hindrance for an organization to consider going to activity-based working if they, if they kind of focus on that very minute population. Um, but ultimately, I think the decision about whether or not to go unassigned really boils down to a company's level of readiness for that way of working, which is often driven by their culture. So there, beyond, you know, the, the few people that may have a very specific role and a requirement where they need to work in a particular way, I think most organizations that grapple with this or that struggle um, about whether or not to do this is because they're, they're a little apprehensive about going through what will be perceived as often a big change um, for employees in the organization. And in some instances, there's a little bit of already so much change happening in a company, whether it's disruption in their industry 
or just, you know, changes in leadership or whatever they may be, this sometimes is going to be one additional thing that they're, they feel like is going to put people over the edge, so they choose not to do it. But really, the, the, the instances of where it absolutely would not apply um, are, not, are not big ones. And so it's really, it does boil down to kind of an ultimate readiness for change and a cultural decision. And I would just, I totally agree with Zamla and would just say that I think it's important to realize that this is all an iterative approach. It's not a one and done methodology. So even if there is a department or set of people that are not ready for it wholeheartedly today, um, they may be in six months, a year, 18 months from now. So continuing to revisit um, job tasks and what environment best suits them is really important because everybody's job is changing so rapidly um, and will continue to do so certainly over the next decade. All right, um, sounds like uh, change management and the ability to maybe stay agile is key to, um, you know, to implementing this. Um, one of the things, of course, that, you know, is always recently, especially on top of uh, mind is employee experience. So even though employee individuality is important, space planning to in individual needs is impossible. How do you encourage organizations you work with to bridge the gap between space planning for individuals and one-size-fits-all programming? That's such a great question. I think this is an ongoing struggle because you often hear people say, you know, one size does not fit all, but almost in the same breath, there's, they say, but customization limits our ability to be agile. So the best thing that you can do is really dig into where there are true differences between the departments and then determine how you can accommodate those needs. And I would say in my experience, this often requires going beyond what they say and just taking that at face value. So for example, you know, if you're having sort of an initial conversation with a, with a leader of a line of business or a particular department, you know, they may start to sort of immediately set out the differences between what they do versus how the rest of the organization works and how their needs might be, you know, entirely unique or different. And I think that you have to really dig into that and ask some more follow-up questions to really understand what is it that they do? How is it truly unique from what all the other departments are doing? And then work to come up with the solution. I think, you know, we often hear they'll say, well, you know, a lot of what I do is very confidential or what my department does is very confidential or, you know, there's a true need for privacy um, in, this, in this department or in this function. And so I think you can't take those comments, which are pretty general at face value. You really need to understand does the level of confidentiality, is that amongst the employees in that particular department where it's confidential in between just them, or is it really confidential between another department that might be adjacent to them where they cannot overhear? And things like privacy, you know, well, is that visual privacy or is it acoustic privacy or, or potentially both? Um, so what are the things that people are actually doing that are driving some of those needs where they feel like there's a level of customization that's required. So um, again, it really is about going through the process of understanding, you know, certainly to the level of individual needs, but then bringing that up to the level of department needs, and then really identifying things that are truly unique about a department that would justify 
the ability or the need to create something bespoke for them. Yeah, and I would say, so I began in corporate real estate well over a decade ago, and standardization and efficiency was the definition of success, and we did that all through squeezing metrics. And from Boston to Tokyo, the standard was always the same, and the only way that offices were allowed to really show their individuality or culture was through elements like artwork, right? That's pretty much what we allowed. And today, just even through the survey results that we're showing, there's much more of an acceptance that we need to build an environment that supports people and that supports work styles. And as Domla mentioned, you know, in some instances, it is true that maybe an ABW environment that supports a finance professional isn't the best ABW environment that may support a marketing team. So allowing for elements of individuality um, within a set of design principles, so within sort of a standard framework, is allowing structured yet agile approach. It's allowing corporations to stay structured in the way that they are delivering things, yet allowing individuals that are operating within that structure and framework to be a little bit agile in how they approach it. And we can't forget that the way each individual uses their ABW environment is inherently um, flexible because it inherently allows for individual needs because in essence you can use whatever environment within that overall environment that is suiting you on that particular day. Um, and then the only other thing that I would mention there is the addition of amenities. So the, the topic of amenities is coming up much more often uh, today and it's not just amenities such as uh, cafeteria or coffee or fitness centers, but they're much more service and experience related amenities that in some ways uh, can be more fungible um, because they can ebb and flow with the needs of the organization at any given time. Um, they just need to be programmed. And so that is a really great way also to bring individuality um, and a unique curated feel to these environments uh, through that way. That's great. Um, we're at our last question here. You both mentioned um, agility in your previous uh, response. And, you know, the term agility is becoming more and more of a household term and is associated with real estate strategy more and more. Uh, you know, you mentioned a few things about how it can help uh, occupiers be more agile. So how does an ABW environment help to satisfy an agile real estate strategy? Any further thoughts on that? Sure, so when people think about an agile real estate strategy, the path of least resistance usually takes them to talk about flexible space solutions such as co-working. But we're trying to define agility more broadly than just the ability to change quickly. We really believe that any real estate strategy that is agile has to be constantly at the ready to deliver more effective workplaces, more streamlined portfolios, and in turn, what that's going to do is it's going to drive better business performance and it's going to help attract the talent that is going to drive that better business performance. So every real estate decision, regardless of whether it has to do with a lease term or not, really needs to be taken with that lens on it. Um, for many, the appeal of co-working is, yes, the shortened lease length, but also it's the design and the aesthetic of the space that's often fashioned after activity-based workplace environments. And the majority of occupier requirements cannot be um, managed through co-working spaces. And so it's bringing up this discussion of building these environments 
um, that can be very agile within their own lease structure. And personally, I think that ABW environments promote agility in three specific ways. Um, the first is the environment is more ready to accept changes to organizational structure as project teams become more prolific and they're banded and disbanded and or people are moved um, and onboarded. And it removes that cumbersome process of traditional moves that, that everyone traditionally had to go through where either the orange or the blue crates were at your desk and it was like, oh, it's gonna be another two weeks before I'm settled. That sort of all disappears under an ABW environment, especially an unassigned one. Uh, second, the infrastructure is often able to be reconfigured over a shorter period of time to accommodate changes to the environment versus more traditional builds that often have to be taken offline for a period of weeks or months to change. And then lastly, it's allowing corporate real estate executives to drive further efficiency out of the workplace. I like to actually call ABW environments efficiency 2.0 because it's allowing executives to focus on density and mobility now over traditional per seat metrics. And they're reimagining really the way their space is sized, designed and allocated to help drive further efficiencies and usage out of their portfolio than ever before. Thank you, Julie, and um, thank you, Damla, as well. Um, that really ends our questions for the podcast. Are there any final thoughts or comments that either of you would like to add? Thank you, this was, this was great. It was great to have this conversation with you. Um, we appreciate the opportunity. This concludes this episode of What's Next. Want to record a podcast of your own? Have an idea or point of view you'd like to share? Visit cornetglobal.org to learn more.